You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. It's Monday, August 10th, and here's your coronavirus tip of the day. If you're headed back to school now, remember, get the bully to cram you into a locker. Because from a medical standpoint, that's probably the safest place you can be. Anyway, on tonight's episode, NASA is kicking racism out of space. Jabuki Young White has found Joe Biden's perfect VP and why President Trump deserves to go on Mount Rushmore. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests that swept the globe, people have started to examine every part of our society to try and root out the underlying biases that exist, from the police to corporate hiring practices and even pancake syrup. And with all the problems on Earth having been solved, now we're moving to outer space. NASA is re-examining some of the nicknames it uses for distant objects in outer space. The scientific community sometimes refers to those cosmic objects using unofficial names. NASA says the problem is that some of the names are insensitive and even actively harmful. For example, the nickname for a planetary nebula NGC 2392 was Eskimo Nebula. They are also doing away with the term Siamese Twins Galaxy, used to refer to a pair of spiral galaxies in the Virgo cluster. That's right, people. NASA is making space woke. And I'm fine with renaming stuff, as long as they don't try and change the name of black holes. I don't wanna hear no urban holes or underprivileged holes. They're black and they're proud. You know what NASA should do? If they want real change, they should cancel the moon. Yeah, I said it. The moon is racist as hell. This big white thing constantly following me around like it thinks I'm gonna steal something at night. off, moon! Actually, here's an idea for NASA. They always have budget problems and they're gonna rename things in space. They may as well make money off of it, you know? Why don't they just sell the naming rights for objects that they find? This just in, Earth is on a collision course with the Steakums 100% all beef frozen cheese steak asteroid. May God have mercy on us all. Ah, it's the Steakums 100% all cheese asteroid. And you know, honestly, any change to be more socially aware is progress, even if it is in outer space. In fact, now that I think about it, we should probably stop using the term alien altogether. Cause what if they come down to Earth and they're offended? Welcome to Earth, aliens. What did you just call me the A word? That's so offensive. Uh, no, I've, I've, it's not like that. I, I love E.T. Moving on to international news out of Lebanon. It has been a week since the tragic warehouse explosion in Beirut that killed 200 people and forced hundreds of thousands out of their homes. And now for the residents of that city, grief is turning into rage. Overseas now to Beirut, where anger is boiling over nearly a week after that devastating and deadly explosion. The ammonium nitrate, customs officials say, was negligently stored here, despite their repeated complaints, may have been the spark for a wider movement. Protesters took to the streets throughout the weekend, and now at least three key government officials have resigned. Their demand is clear. Revolution. This weekend, thousands of protesters called for a new government in Lebanon and clashed with security forces sent in to disperse them. The demonstrators briefly occupied government buildings until they were pushed out. Yeah. 
after discovering that government officials repeatedly ignored warnings about the chemicals that caused that massive explosion, the people of Lebanon have taken to the streets. And believe it or not, this explosion is just the tip of the iceberg. Because for years now, the people of Lebanon have been complaining about rampant corruption in all levels of government and how bigger countries are using them as a political pawn. And you know things are bad when the people are saying, look, it's not just about the explosion that blew up half the city. But Lebanon is yet another example of this larger pattern that's happening around the world. A pattern of countries having to deal with multiple major crises at one time. Deciding which problem to tackle first is like deciding what to watch on Netflix. You just keep scrolling through the menu and somehow more and more shit gets added. Well, I could have sworn that STD Island wasn't on this list 10 minutes ago. But let's move on from the chaos in Beirut to the chaos in the United States. With coronavirus now spiking in the Midwest, the US has officially hit 5 million cases with more than 160,000 people dead. And with schools already reopening in parts of the country, a new report says that 97,000 children contracted the virus in just the last two weeks of July. But despite all of that, there are still a lot of Americans doing stuff like this. There are growing concerns this morning that tens of thousands of bikers converging on Sturgis, South Dakota, could be taking part in the super spreading of COVID-19. Officials have added beds at area hospitals with fears that an uptick in the virus could be just weeks away. The Sturgis motorcycle rally is at full throttle in South Dakota. Upwards of 400,000 bikers and guests jammed the region with few visible signs of the coronavirus pandemic. Throngs of maskless bikers packed the streets. Large crowds packed together at concerts and bars with very few masks in sight. Yes, you see some people look at the global pandemic and see the glass half empty. And some other people smash the glass on the side of their head and go, woo! Because yeah, of course bikers don't care about coronavirus. These are the same people who already said Fuck you to seatbelts and airbags. Not following safety precautions gives them a rush. They'd fly on the outside of a plane if they could. Now look, on the one hand, maybe bikers are less likely to catch coronavirus because they're riding outside. But on the other hand, they also like to ride in long lines. So I mean, one person sneezes at the front and they're all screwed. If you ask me though, these bikers are gonna be fine. Have you ever seen a movie about the apocalypse? Who's left behind? Bikers. The only people left behind are always bikers. They're all driving around having a good time. I've seen Mad Max. There wasn't a single epidemiologist. Now, while the US is still struggling to get coronavirus under control, it's also continuing to deal with the economic fallout of the pandemic. And although congressional Republicans eventually agreed with Democrats that the country needs another round of coronavirus relief, the two sides have been unable to reach an agreement on what that should look like. Nancy Pelosi wants to extend the $600 a week benefits, while Mitch McConnell wants to give people just enough to starve. But luckily for America, there's an excellent deal maker who lives in the White House. But because she's busy in the Rose Garden, her husband came up with this. This morning, there's confusion and controversy about President Trump's new executive actions on coronavirus relief. On Saturday, Trump signed four executive actions that would extend unemployment benefits, curb evictions, provide relief to student borrowers, and suspend collection of payroll taxes. But Democrats are bashing the president's moves. They say he's exceeding presidential authority and that his orders actually accomplish far less than meets the eye. A lot of the claims President Trump made at his New Jersey golf club this weekend simply don't add up. 
He says he's preventing evictions, but in reality, his order directs federal agencies to consider whether halting evictions is necessary. Even some Republicans are accusing the president of making promises he constitutionally can't keep. Republican Senator Ben Sass calls the president's executive actions unconstitutional slop. Damn, unconstitutional slop. I thought that's what they called the in-flight meals on Spirit Airlines. Spirit Airlines. The real joke is we don't serve meals. But you gotta give it to Trump, man. He knows that Congress is so gridlocked that they can make even him look good. Because you see, it doesn't matter if his executive orders are illegal or toothless or completely unworkable. He understands that even the appearance of doing something is better than the appearance of going on recess in the middle of a recession, which is what Congress is doing. Although Congress will tell you that they aren't on recess. Yeah, apparently they're just at home, but they'll come back if there's a deal, which they won't be because they're not working, but they're not on recess. So don't call it recess. They're just not working, which is not recess. It's just home thing. And don't get me wrong. Some of these ideas that Trump proposed are actually good ones. I mean, suspending student loan payments makes a lot of sense right now. And banning evictions is a great idea. Even though I'm pretty sure that Trump only wants that because he thinks it means that he can't get kicked out of the White House. But as for these other ideas, Trump has just created a mess, right? He wants to extend unemployment insurance, but even if he can convince a court that he's allowed to do that without Congress, it only works if states agree to foot part of the bill. And by freezing the payroll tax, he's either gonna hit people with a huge bill when it's unfrozen, or he might have to cut social security because it gets its money from the payroll tax. So in many ways, Trump's executive orders are like those coupons that you get, you know, where it says the good news in big letters, free value meal. But then on the bottom in small print, it says, I've only valid in Alaska between two and four in the morning. And if Jerry's working, then you have to share your fries with him. So once again, President Trump has tried to solve a problem and ended up creating a bigger mess. But if you're wondering whether he thinks he's doing a good job, well, here's one indication. President Trump may be pushing to have his face added to Mount Rushmore. The president has been public about his admiration of the monument. He spoke there during the July 4th weekend. Now the New York Times says the White House reached out to South Dakota's governor last year asking about the process of adding presidents. The governor is quoted as saying the president has expressed sincere interest in the idea. That's right. Trump thinks that he deserves to be on Mount Rushmore. And honestly, I agree with him. I think we should put Trump on Mount Rushmore, but not a carving. I think we should actually put him on Mount Rushmore. No phone, no internet, problem solved. Actually, I wouldn't even mind Trump's face being carved into Mount Rushmore, you know, just as long as they choose the right picture. Because there are a lot of Trump faces that I could get behind, you know, like, How about trying to catch a baseball Trump or hair blowing in the wind Trump? And who says it has to be a face? You know, let's just throw Trump's tennis ass up there, huh? The point is this could be the monument that finally brings all of America together because liberals will look up at Mount Rushmore and be like, look at that ass. And conservatives will look up and be like, ooh, look at that ass. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but stay tuned because Jabuki Young White has found Joe Biden's VP. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. We are now just 85 days away from the 2020 presidential election, which makes this a great time to start the 300 mile journey to your nearest polling location. It also means 
it's time for our continuing coverage of Votegasm 2020. In one week, the Democratic National Convention kicks off, and Joe Biden will officially accept the party nomination and then say how happy he is to be at the Grammy Awards. It also means that any day now, we'll be finding out who Biden chooses to be on the ticket with him. Joe Biden is set to make his most important choice any day now, his running mate. The presumptive Democratic nominee huddled with family at his home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware over the weekend as he closed in on what is possibly his most important decision. Leading possible choices include California Senator Kamala Harris, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who flew to Delaware last weekend for an in-person interview. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Duckworth and Congresswomen Karen Bass and Val Demings also still being considered. Ooh, this is gonna be tough. All of those candidates are definitely qualified to be Biden's VP. But when making his choice, Biden has to consider all of their potential landmines for him. You know, Susan Rice has Benghazi baggage. Kamala Harris was a strict prosecutor. Elizabeth Warren could turn off moderates. Gretchen Whitmer is white. And Karen Bass has made some weird comments about Fidel Castro and Scientology. So this is a really difficult decision. You know, it's like The Bachelor, except here there's a chance a black woman might get picked. And I understand that he has to be careful, but there is something ironic that Joe Biden is the one looking for a running mate with zero flaws. I don't know, guys, I don't know if she'll work. She said the wrong thing one time 10 years ago. And if I know all black people, they won't like that. But look, only Joe Biden knows who he's gonna pick. So guessing who it could be is just pointless speculation. So let's do some pointless speculation. And to help us with that, let's go to Jabuki Young White. Jabuki, thanks for joining us, man. There's no perfect choice in this, but who do you think Biden should pick? as his vice president. You know, Trevor, there's a very obvious choice here. And when we're looking at vice presidents, you really want in general, someone who's fresh, who's, you know, exciting, but specifically for Biden, we need someone diverse and someone who's going to round out the ticket. And the only person who can do that is Cardi B. Cardi B, the rapper? Yeah. You can't be serious. Oh, no, yeah, I'm dead serious, Trevor. I mean, think about it. Young people will vote for her. Progressives will vote for her because she campaigned for Bernie, all right? She's also diverse. She gets in the minority vote. And we're missing this part here and a lot of other candidates. She brings in a huge community that has exploded since the beginning of quarantine, which is the horny community. I don't know, Jabuki. I I mean, I love Cardi B, but... She can be real controversial. I mean, she, she just came out with a song entitled Wet Ass Pussy. Okay, well... You know well, that Republicans are gonna use this to try and hit Biden. Okay, that's not his pussy, Trevor. It's hers. And those conservatives are being hypocrites, okay? They just happened to watch the video on accident and then accidentally watched the video again and again and again until they just exploded online? No. That doesn't make any sense. And I mean, they were fine. They were perfectly okay with Trump saying that he would grab people by the pussy. And shit, they're, they're trying to get Kanye to run. And Kanye once said, I'll put the pussy in a sarcophagus. That's murder. Okay, I guess that's fair. But how does Cardi B bring in voters for Biden? I mean, we, we don't know any of her ideas. Well, Trevor, the policy is in the music. You just have to listen. I mean, if you watch the video, throw up that video, she's doing all of this in a factory. 
She's super pro-workers' rights. And then on climate change, how do you think the pussy got wet in the first place? Sea level is now vagina level. So you really, you really, really think that Cardi B should be Biden's VP? Definitely, Trevor. Look, I want Biden to pick Cardi B because think about how great it would be to see Cardi B on that stage in that dress debating Mike Pence. He would evaporate into a puddle of oat milk immediately. He'd just be like, oh, oh mother says I can't. Mother, is, it, it, is, it, it, he wouldn't know what to do. He'd malfunction. Look, clearly Cardi is the pick that America needs. She's someone who can inspire people, inspire women to believe in themselves and take what's rightfully theirs. And she lets all of us know that in America, we're ready for some big, veiny, throbbing, juicy structural change. Cardi B for WAVP, wet-ass vice president. Jibuki Young White, everyone. Thank you so much. Okay, when we come back, I'll be talking to Representative Pramila Jayapal, so don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Representative Pramila Jayapal, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and author of the new book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Representative Jayapal, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) Thank you, it's so great to be with you. You have a new book entitled, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. What are some of the tips and tricks that you would teach a woman who wants to get into politics who has melanin in her skin? Yes, well, you know, Congress does not look a lot like me. There are only 79 women of color out of 11,000 that have ever served in the U.S. House of Representatives. And so it is different. We have to assert our voice. We have to use our power. And we have to be ready for all the sexism and racism that we face when we walk into those halls. Not super different than other places we might have been in some ways. But you would think that the House of Representatives, the People's House, should be different. And it's not yet. So this is um, saying to you know women of color everywhere, frankly, women in general, that when you come in, know that you have power. Don't let somebody else intimidate you. They're most probably intimidated by you. And um, claim your space, but also be ready. You know, do the work, be ready, because you will be subjected to far more than most of your colleagues. You have an interesting journey in that you came to the U.S. at 16 to study. 18 years later, you became a U.S. citizen, and you're now serving, representing American citizens and uh, non-American citizens alike. Do, Do you feel like there's ever a conflict of interest as an immigrant or as a U.S. citizen, or do you think that that's a fallacy that people have created? Yeah, it's very much of a fallacy. I mean, I think it's funny because, you know, 16 and and now 40 years later almost, I'm not quite not quite at 40, but I I am now in the United States of America. This is my home. Where am I supposed to go back to? So this idea that somehow you're never going to be American enough is ridiculous. And I think it's important that for those of us, there are 14 of us that are immigrants born outside of the United States, naturalized, serving in Congress today. This is also an important part of the story of America. When you think about this country and and the conversations that are being had now, 
I feel a lot of the time it's easy for, for, for people to say, oh, the, the problem is on the Republican side. You know, that's where we're seeing sexism. That's where we're seeing racism. But we come to learn time and time again that sexism, racism, a lot of the problems that we're facing in society aren't really party dependent. How do you broach the topic with your colleagues who you feel like have blind spots when it comes to race or when it comes to gender or when it comes to immigration? Yeah, I I talk about this in the book. I do think we have to call it out within our own party. The way I approach it is, you know, if it's with a colleague, I will talk to them directly if something happens um, and I will try to raise it. I will tell you that after the murder of George Floyd, um, there was some very powerful caucus calls where I think many of our white colleagues in the caucus really had their own awakening. And, you know, we talked about white fragility and we talked about some of the other concepts that it is really important for people across party lines to recognize what they have done to further the narratives of racist policy. And I I think that that's just something that is coming to light over and over again. We see it very clearly. Sometimes our colleagues don't. So when they're on our side, obviously, you, you know, you try to raise it in the best way possible, but sometimes you do have to take it on publicly and you do have to call out those racist policies when you see them. You have been pro-Bernie. You have been one of the people pushing the party predominantly to the left. And now Joe Biden, as you've commented on in the past, is someone where people aren't enthusiastically wanting to vote for, but will vote for because Donald Trump is the alternative. Going into the election, how are you gonna balance that message of saying to people, Yes, Joe Biden is not as progressive as we wanted, but you've got to go out and vote for him. Do you think do you think that balance is something that you can achieve? Absolutely. I don't think there's any contradiction whatsoever. We have two candidates on the ballot. One is Donald Trump, one is Joe Biden. There is zero progress that is possible on anything that we care about with Donald Trump in the White House. He is a fascist xenophobe who is destroying our constitution. And so we have to get him out. And uh, this is a critically important election. And so, as I said to Vice President Biden, um, I will be right there with him. I will be doing everything I can to support and get everyone to turn out for Joe Biden. And I will be pushing him. I will, you know, as soon as we get him in the White House and even before um, with these task forces that we had, we were able to significantly push Joe Biden to do things that he hadn't signed on to before. So he is movable, he is listening, and he does understand that we need turnout from young people, from folks of color, and I'm gonna do everything I can to help get him elected, and then I'm gonna be right out front making sure that we continue to push for the policies that we need as a country. When you when you look at where America is headed li- right now, there, there, there are two things that are pressing for most people from what I see. Number one is, Will the government find a way to continue the stimulus checks? But I'd love to know as somebody who's serving in Congress, firstly, is, is there any progress that you are seeing in getting people the checks that they so badly need to, to, to survive? And secondly, what are, you, what, are, what are some of the conversations you are having in protecting and preserving America's election, which might not be an election day anymore, might be an election week, might be an election month, depending on how long it takes to count mail-in ballots? On the relief, we have to, Trevor. I mean, this is just cruelty. My constituents, some of them are facing being kicked out of their homes. They don't have money to put food on the table. They don't know what to do with their kids. They're being pushed to go back to work or to open up schools. And this president is pulling PR stunts with some executive orders that do absolutely nothing. Um, So where is the pressure for this? It's going to come 
from the people, particularly in those Republican states where there's a senator up for reelection. And that senator is going to say, all of these people are not going to reelect me. This is the power of the vote. And we need to have the cacophony of voices across the country saying, this is what's happening to me. Cruelty, three and a half million cases just in the last 12 weeks, 163,000 deaths of Americans. It is absolute lunacy that this president and the Republicans have refused to bargain. So that's where the leverage is going to come, people's voices and stories. On the second point, um, this is very important. This president is trying to undermine the election in numerous ways. He is you know, refusing to give money to the U.S. Postal Service. And if he doesn't do that, then the Postal Service can't deliver the ballots. He's refusing to put money into states so that those states that don't have mail-in voting can move to whatever they need to do. Now, we in Washington state do. It's been incredibly successful. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the claim that the fraud rate is high is ridiculous. There was a study done that over um, 240 million ballots that were cast over the last 20 years, the fraud rate is 0.00006%. So we have to make sure that we are getting money into these systems. But there's something else for everybody that's listening. Vote early. As soon as you can vote, get your vote in, get your ballot in, because this is going to be critical. They will try to stop ballots from being delivered. They will try all kinds of things. Last thing, what do we do if the president tries to retain power? We have, we're talking with top constitutional um, scholars, and we're really going through all the different ways in which this could happen. It will take people in the streets if this happens. And then of course, all the court challenges um, that will be there. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about whether Republicans are going to stand up for this president, even as he takes the country into fascism and dictatorship. Well, that's a, a bleak future, and I, I hope we never have to answer any of those questions. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Trevor. When we come back, I'll be talking to the very talented Michaela Cole about her hit show, I May Destroy You. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Michaela Cole, the creator and star of the HBO series, I May Destroy You, which takes a nuanced and brutally honest look at surviving sexual assaults. Michaela Cole, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thanks, Trevor. Um, you have written a show that, that everybody has tried to describe. You know, you, you created the show that's, that's been a smash hit on HBO, I May Destroy You. Some people have called it tough viewing. Others have called it necessary viewing. I had one friend who said to me, you got to watch the show. And I said, what is it about? And they said, it's about sexual assault. And then I watched the show and I was like, no, this show is about everything. As the creator of the show, what is I May Destroy You about? I think that you're right. I think it's about everything. I sometimes say that, but I realize it doesn't work when you're pitching to CDOs. It's about everything. <laughs> um, it, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like, if Seinfeld was a show about nothing, this is really a show about everything for me because it's, it's, it's difficult at times to watch. Not because it's hard to watch, but, but because of the questions that the show makes you ask of yourself, of society, of the things you've said or experienced or done. And I think what, what, what really strikes a chord with a lot of people is you wrote a show that was loosely based on your experience with, with sexual assault. When you, when you were writing this, 
did you go, I'm just putting everything I've experienced into the show, or were there moments where you thought, this is what I would have done, should have done, could have done, or these are some of the conversations I wish would have been had around my real life experience? Interesting. Uh, It's definitely very fictional, but the assault is really not, not exact. I wanted to purposely have a distinction so that my my own experiences were separate to Arabella's, but it, it's uh, it's very fine where they differ. It's very fine, but in terms of the journey of the character, yes, that's it's partly reality, but partly fiction. It's hard to right. know what amount, you know. Some of the characters you've written in the show, in in normal shows, would just be the good guys. You know, like your 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 character Arabella has friends where. One minute I'm like, these are the most amazing supportive friends. And then I go like, wait, her friends are part of the story of sexual assault. And I don't know how to feel about this because she doesn't know how to feel about this. And then there are times when you make me not like the lead character, Arabella, where I go like, well, she's, she's being an asshole right now. And I know she's a victim of sexual assault, but she's an asshole. Am I allowed to feel that this person is an asshole even though they're a victim of sexual assault? That, that's a very complex story that you've created. It is, isn't it? But I really want us to try and see her as an asshole. I, 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 for me, that moment, especially in episode nine, where she really goes off at Kwame, yes. I need us to understand that Arabella's being an asshole. That's kind of like the point of that episode is that you're, you can't just follow a hero blindly. And Arabella is the hero of the show. She's the hero of that episode, but she's going to, I don't know if we can swear. Maybe arsehole is a swear word in America. You, I'm not sure. Yeah, you, you can. can. No, you can say whatever you want. Gonna up. Okay. She's, she's going to up. And I really wanted to experiment with how ugly we could make her and then ended up making it a Halloween episode. Because um, I guess I'm, I'm also quite curious about the faults within myself. And it, it kind of, it felt like for me, uh, at the stage that I was writing, I'd almost maybe forgotten the real ugliness that I can possess. And I think in life, it's easy to forget that, especially when we're living quite traumatized lives, it can lead you into very binary thinking as a way of surviving. So I I, I needed Arabella to see like a mirror to herself, right? Like a, a true mirror of her, her amazing qualities, but also her really ugly qualities. She completely misreads the situation. She's not there for her friend. She's not seeing the nuance of his experience at all. Um, uh, yeah, I find it really interesting, you know. I find, I find it interesting that, um, you know, some of my friends were like, but Michaela, you know, you're not saying that, like, what what Kwame did was wrong, right? And it's like, I'm not saying that anything is wrong or right. I'm just putting characters in a frame and I'm watching them interact. I'm allowing them to interact and I want us to watch and see how uncomfortable it is when you, 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 it's not so easy to place yourself in a camp. It's really hard when you can see where both sides are coming from. One of the most difficult conversations this show continuously has is the conversation about consent. There's no denying that the Me Too movement has brought, brought to the fore a conversation about consent. What is consent? How do we define consent? Your show goes through that in so many different ways. You know, we, we see, we see um, uh, it's Terry's character who has, who has a threesome that she consented to, but then upon discovering that the guys that she thought were, you know, just happened to be guys she bumped into, they planned this happened to be threesome. 
you know, we see this with, with Arabella's character. She has content, consensual sex with a guy who takes off his condom during sex that she doesn't know about. And then he tries to make it seem like it was consensual and she's crazy. And you have so many different worlds of consent that you're playing with. Do you, do you think that you found the answer or do you think the point of the show is to make us ask the questions about what consent is and oh, what it should really, be? Well, I think it's really simple. I think that if Terry or Arabella during episode four, you know, or Terry in the threesome, if they had the full details of what they were experiencing, would they consent? Would Terry consent if she met that guy and said, hey, this is my friend. We are looking for someone to fall into our plan. We're gonna pretend we're strangers and we're looking for someone to Are you down? She'd be like, I don't know, I mean, Possibly she might not be up for that. I think if uh, if someone said, hey, yeah, great. I'm really glad you want to have sex and I'm really glad you've asked for a condom. But in the middle of this, I'm going to take it off when you're not looking. Are you up for it? Probably going to say no. This is why I call it a theft of consent because details are purposely hidden from you so that you consent. But if you saw those details, you wouldn't consent. So for me, this is sexual assault. I think legally, this is sexual assault. Legally, this is rape. However, you jump from continent to continent and the rules change. And this is what I find, you know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Before I let you go, many of the women who work at The Daily Show have asked me to say thank you to you for displaying a woman's period um, with all the nuance that it deserves and not just landing on it as a punchline. Um, and so what I will ask as someone who loves the show, wh why did you choose to talk about a woman's period in the way that you did? Yes. Well, one of the things I, I very much love is that that is one of the only moments of consensual sex in the series. And for me, again, it's like if, if we're going to have consensual sex, it has to be interesting. It, it has to say something other than, oh, two people having sex. So I thought that was that was a great thing to show. Also, that is inspired by my real life. I've had wonderful experiences with, with guys who gave more honor to my blood than I did when I was disgusted and like, they were like, chill out, like it's a period. So I thought it was nice to, to pay some homage to those men, uh, that not all men go at periods, you know. Well, Michaela, I could talk to you forever. Um, I thank you for being on the show and thank you for creating what, honestly, in my opinion, is one of the most crucial conversation starters that we can have around consent, around sex, around identity, and genuinely around everything. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you, Trevor. I'm a really big fan and it's been lovely to talk and meet you. Thank you so much again, Michaela. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, there are a lot of groups out there right now who are working to protect and advance voting rights for the elections in November. One of those organizations is the Alliance for Youth Organizing, which is a national network of local youth-led organizations mobilizing people to vote. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.